welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. New Antioch once again for the opportunity to, to teach and lecture on the Trinity. We are in the final stretch of the lectures and we are looking in this lecture at our second dogmatics lesson. So again, for, for your knowledge, what do we mean when we speak about dogmatics? Well, it's, in many ways, it's a, it's a synonym to systematics. It's a categorization. Uh, of what we know, uh, the, the body of knowledge about a certain topic. But when we speak of dogmatics, we speak also uh, with this nuance of what is received, what's been agreed upon, what's been received. And uh, in the case of the Trinity, that is particularly important. So let's review just briefly our first dogmatics lecture. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One is for those who may not have been with us last time, but also because, as promised, I intend to go over and cover similar territory, but with greater depth in some different areas. And so, having um, listened to and grasped in its totality, comprehensively, everything that, that I said last week, no, I'm, I'm joking, of course, uh, but that, that will give us a good framework for what we'll be looking at in this lecture. So, in the last lecture, we spoke, first of all, about the persons and what defines persons. And so, we made a distinction about persons being this center of will or activity or rationality, such that you would not speak about a nature doing something, but you would speak about a person doing something or thinking something. And we, we looked to the doctrine of actually Christology um, 
to, to help kind of tease that out a little bit. We also defined and specified uh, a distinction between what is called the ad intra and the ad extra of the Trinity. So the ad intra is the Trinity as they are eternally in their, uh, in their eternal relations without reference to creation redemption. And it's important to understand that, that, that we need to think in that category sometimes. Uh, the ad extra refers to how the Trinity doctrine of Trinity is worked out in creation and redemption. Um, and then we also uh, had some conception of, of the fact that the ad extra reflects the ad intra uh, in very, yeah, very, I guess you would say close ways. Uh, there are some distinctions you want to make between those things, but um, there is certainly a reflection such that as you see the doctrine of the Trinity in creation and redemption in the word of God, only very seldom do we get a conception of the Trinity sort of pulling back the curtains of, of who they are in their interrelations uh, eternally so that we understand that we have a true knowledge of the triune God because they're closely linked, the ad extra and the ad intra. We um, considered the two processions or emanations. You could use either word, and those two processions were generation and spiration. And I just wanted to add, just because depending on who you're looking at, who you're reading, and even maybe some of the quotes that I may bring out uh, today, or, or I'm thinking about maybe even past quotes, the, there's another word that's sometimes put in for spiration, and that's procession for, for the Holy Spirit. Uh, so sometimes processions is used in a more limited way to refer to the Spirit and his, um, and how he, his origin, if you will, and sometimes the word procession is used in a more general way to speak about the origin of both the Son and the Father. Okay, so this you just got to get used to it that within the, the doctrine of the Trinity, as people try to make distinctions uh, and try to use certain vocabulary, that there are times that people will use vocabulary in different ways. We spoke about um, how it is that each person is differentiated. And so we considered the issue of personal properties. And so the father's personal property, the thing that makes him who he is, is his paternity. Uh, with the son, it's his filiation. And with the Holy Spirit, is, it is his spiration. We also considered that uh, even from this alone, um, and there's probably other things you could bring into, uh, into this idea, but there is an order or a taxis of the Trinity. That the, the son being from one, and the spirit being from two, or from the first through, through the second, that you've got a taxis and an order that bears out in, uh, in creation and redemption as well. Although in different ways, and in our lectures uh, on the vestiges of the Trinity, which we'll start, Lord willing, uh, in, the, in the next lecture tonight, that uh, we'll see that, that uh, there's some interesting complexities to that. Uh, we also spoke about the means of divine unity. And I urged you to think of the fact that there are three means of divine unity. And in fact, I think this forms a Trinitarian triad. First of all, that, the, that they have their unity, the three persons, via consubstantiality. 
That is that they share the one divine essence. But that is not the only means of divine unity. Uh, there are some um, theologians and uh, currently that lean into consubstantiality as the means of divine unity almost completely to the exclusion of other means, um, which probably, it probably stems from Augustine. Augustine leans into consubstantiality more than the other uh, means, but also I mentioned the eternal relations. And then thirdly, mutual indwelling or perichoresis. So, as we move into our second lecture on dogmatics, uh, I want to bring off just a, bring out a little comment uh, concerning Calvin. We, of course, we touched on Calvin in our historical lectures, and, uh, and he says this. He says, here, if ever, among the hidden mysteries of scripture, I recommend sober philosophizing of extreme restraint with the further condition of great caution, lest either thought or tongue go beyond the point to which the territories of God's word extend. And let me suggest to you that I, I think Calvin actually is overly cautious in that way. I do. I think that uh, Calvin is too cautious. I think that we need to be careful where we build implications um, on Scripture and what it reveals concerning the Trinity. But I believe that, and I don't have the quote here right in front of me, but I know that both Jonathan Edwards and Gregory Nazianzen were, they stated, listen, I'll be bold about what I believe about the Trinity. Um, and, and that kind of represents my, my thoughts a little bit more, although we must always agree with Augustine when he says that no error is more dangerous than any as regards the Trinity. In other words, okay, we, you know, we want to be bold to say, you know, Holy Spirit reveal uh, the triune nature of God. Um, we want to delve in. We want to use the minds that God has given us to pull out where, whatever we can to plumb the depths of the, of the Trinity. And yet, we must constantly be aware of referring back to Scripture and just being uh, careful. Uh, no error is more dangerous than any as regards the Trinity. So, what we're going to do with this lecture is, first of all, I want to talk a little bit more about the two processions and talk about the means of those processions, or what is called the modes of emanation, or the modes of procession, all right? Because I think there's a little bit further that some things that we can say about the Son and the Spirit in their origin. Um, then we're going to build on what is a mnemonic that theologians have often used for the Trinity to talk about there's a sense in which there's a oneness, a two-ness, a three-ness, a four-ness, and a five-ness to the Trinity, all right? And so we're going to build on that. that. That's By that, we don't mean, of course, that the spirit or that the triune God is more than three, but just that there's, there's five sort of up to five ways of speaking about the Trinity. Anyways, you'll, when we get there, if that's, hopefully I'm not um, just being uh, obfuscating. Hopefully this, is, this will become clear when we get there at least. Um, I want to say a few things about how the one God is three persons. And then lastly, I want to get into a little bit, build, build, certainly building on things that are in the theology that's been handed down to us um, 
things in, in stemming from, from Augustine and some of the other church fathers, uh, Hillary, and then developed through the medievals. But I will be adding my own kind of touch to them. So a little bit speculative, uh, hopefully still uh, thoroughly biblical. And I want to suggest something about the uniqueness of the Holy Spirit. In order to build for where we're going to be going with the next three lectures when it comes to uh, the vestiges of the Trinity in creation, redemption, and the last things. All right. So, first of all, what can we say about the tr two processions and how has this been stated throughout history? Um, well, starting from, uh, let's start with the, with, the, with the sun and his mode of emanation, which is by nature, by nature. And uh, this is often conceived of also in terms of knowledge. And I remember um, somebody asking a question concerning this going back a few lectures, and we're, we're going to kind of traverse some of that same uh, ground here in um, in speaking about this now in the mode of emanation. So picking up on some of the scriptures that we have concerning the Son, for instance, in John chapter 1, in which the Son is spoken of as the, uh, the eternal Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is the, the Logos. Um, we see that there is this idea of Christ being the eternal son, that is, being the knowledge of God. And so picking up on that, there has been a conception of how the son is derived from the father by means of, of knowledge or knowing. Um, and this has often been put side by side, sometimes distinguished a little bit, sometimes put right together with the idea that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And again, this is, this is interesting because we know that when it says the image of the invisible God, now, of course, maybe we'll give a caveat here. Uh, the caveat is, of course, that Christ has been imaged in bodily form here in his incarnation among us. Nevertheless, if he is the image of the invisible God, um, the radiance of God's glory, he is in some sense what may be perceived or seen of the Father, and yet without, at least eternally, without a body, without, without material substance. So again, it, you, you, come, you get to an idea that is very similar to this idea of, um, of, being, of the Son being the, what is known uh, by God. Uh, so recently I was doing some reading on, on this aspect um, of the son's generation and, and then the mode of emanation. And I came across, um, so Aquinas and Joseph Poli both have some good, um, some, you know, some good literature on this, some good writing. But I came across um, a fellow, a reformed theologian um, by the name of Bartholomew Keckerman who was referenced in a systematic theology or a dogmatic theology uh, by Heinrich Hepp. And I was reading through this and I thought to myself, wow, I don't know if you could do a better job of explaining this in a clear but deep fashion. And so I'm going to read this for you because I don't think I could do a, a possibly do a better job of explaining this aspect of, um, 
of the son's generation and, and how it is from uh, nature or knowledge. So reading then from Keckerman through Hep. God has most excellent knowledge, is in fact knowledge itself in the highest degree, but knowledge is the actual actus of God's essence. In fact, the essence itself in activity. Therefore, this actus of knowing is infinite and eternal like the essence itself. But eternal knowledge has an eternal object which it cognizes. Now, what this means is that if God is knowing, knowledge, you know, all knowledge is, is in him, we might ask, well, what does God know? And the answer cannot be, in the ultimate sense, anything within creation, because then God in his knowing would be contingent upon creation. The knowledge must be within himself. And so God the Father then has an object of his knowing, which is his son, his logos. And so this, this knowledge is a perfect knowledge. Um, and so he goes on to say, just as the soul thinks of itself, and this thought or intellection is called reflex, but now since no knowledge knows without an image of the object which it knows, it is necessary, whereas God has known himself most perfectly from eternity, that he has conceived and begotten in his very self the most perfect image of himself. Uh, and then, just a little bit later, since then God is most perfect life, and since his entire life is knowledge, he needs must have a conception most akin to knowledge and most inward. And this conception, which is the most perfect of the divine knowledge, will be a generation, positing a mode of existence in God or a second person which is rightly called both the image of God. Um, I think he goes on to say, I've cut off the quote there. I, I suspect it says, uh, and the logos of God, that, that's what I suspect it goes on to say. The divine knower being the father who, according to his appropriations, plans, purposes, all things, knows all things, has an object in his son that he perfectly knows. And, uh, and it's fascinating that when you look at all Indo-Germanic languages, I'm drawing from Joseph Poli here, that the idea of both generation and the idea of thinking are closely linked ideas. Um, because we might think to ourselves, okay, you've got this idea of generation, eternal begottenness, so you, you have in your mind kind of this father-son idea, which of course is you ought to have, that's, that's, their, that's their names, their personal properties. But you also have this idea now, maybe a little bit more metaphysical uh, of, of knowing, of knowledge. And so how are those two ideas connected? Well, they're connected in, for instance, the fact that Adam knew his wife Eve. And the idea there is both a physical knowing that begets as well as a, a knowledge, uh, something that, that is you know, concerning the mind. And so the word conceive has this same kind of double meaning. Um, and, and so with, if you trace that Latin, that word back to the Latin, um, 
Concipio, you have the ideas of, of it, it means to take, to take together. And so you have in the idea of knowledge the fact that you take this knowledge and it becomes yours. And this is actually what happens when you, when you know something. You know something that is outside of yourself. There's an object of your knowledge. However, it becomes yours. It comes into your mind. It is truly your knowledge. It doesn't remain sort of outside of you. Um, and in, in conception, can, uh, as we look at it from the perspective of marriage and, and sexuality uh, and, um, and begetting, this is the idea of a woman bringing the male into herself and his seed. And there's a taking together of, uh, taking of that into herself and a union there that, that brings forth. Very similar ideas if you look at sort of the, the inception um, or the foundation of, of these ideas. Now, what about the Holy Spirit? So you've got a, uh, a mode of emanation that is by, by knowledge. But what about the Holy Spirit? And this is important because one might ask, and it, and it has been asked throughout church history, how is it that the Holy Spirit is not another son? So you've got the Father and his son, and you've got another procession or another emanation. How is the Spirit not the son? Now, of course, you could answer simply in using biblical terminology as we you know, and we, as we unpacked it last week, that, well, the Spirit is breathed out. He's not generated. That would be a good answer. But what does that mean? What does that mean? And throughout church history, theologians, again, st starting with the early church fathers, stated that the, the Holy Spirit emanates by means of will or love, sometimes goodness. The way this works actually fits in an interesting way with, again, this analogy of the mind. That when you conceive or something or you know something, there is a, you appropriate that thing to yourself in your mind. It becomes your knowledge. But when you will something, there is, it's an outward oriented thing that comes out of, uh, out of desire. Something, something that's not in the same necessary way as, for instance, as the generation of the sun. And so there's often been a distinction between the, the sun being generated by, uh, I mentioned knowledge, but also uh, nature, and then the, the spirit by, by the will. Uh, so again, reading from Keckerman. The, the aphorisms now to follow will prove that a third existence is also rooted in God's actual essence. Since knowing is comprised in the divine essence, so also will be volition. The more knowing there is in things, the more will there will be. So there must needs be the most perfect will in God. God wills nothing except so far as he knows it. All right, so I, for me, this is helpful to actually start from the perspective of will. That if we know God is fully will, that is, that he is he's not potentiality, but he fully plans and performs all that he desires, um, that must be according to knowledge. You can't have will 
without knowledge. And so, just as the Spirit is, uh, proceeds from the Father through the Son, according to will, so there must be logically, again, not in time, but logically a prior procession by knowledge. He goes on to say, And as he knows himself as the most perfect ends, so by his will he desires and wills himself as the supreme and most perfect good. Thus, in its activity, God's will returns upon itself and rests in God himself as the infinite good. Now, even if we don't fully comprehend what Kickerman is saying there and how it reflects the, the realities of the Trinity, we should at least be able to assent to it and say, yes, there needs to be some way in which God's most perfect will is supplied by and finds its end in himself. And so, even if we don't figure out all the, uh, the way in which that takes place, we should be able to assent to the fact that the, the Holy Spirit is the means by which uh, this is attained, you might say. So, two processions, generation and spiration, but by knowledge and by will. And again, as, as I've said, will is often sometimes um, unfolded or, or a part of it. Uh, sorry, the chief part of it is often seen as, as love. And we've, we've mentioned that before in relationship to Augustine and Richard of St. Victor, that the Holy Spirit is uh, as the love between the Father and the Son. Let's now review what we know of the Trinity in regards to the numerical mnemonic. All right, so here it is, the numerical mnemonic. You might want to write this down. There is one God or essence. One God or essence. There are two processions. And if you, if you want, you can state also, although this relates to add extra, you could say that there are two missions that correspond to those processions. Okay, one God in essence, two processions, three persons defined by their personal properties, which we mentioned last week. And now we are going to go on to the four. And I want to mention that there are four relations. Four relations. What do we, what do we mean by that? Well, what we mean is that the two processions are from one to another. So, in regards to the Father, the Father, um, he, he generates the Son. Oh, sorry. Sorry, we're starting from the, um, from the processions. We'll, we'll get to the, to the persons in a second. Sorry. Uh, but we want to start with the procession. So, in regards to this procession of generation, the Father is the one who generates or begets and the Son is the one who is begotten or who is filiated. Right? So you've got one procession that has a from and a to. Okay, in regards to the Holy Spirit. He is spirated from the Father through the Son. And he, he proceeds or is spirated. Um, and and that's, the, that's the two. So then you have four relations because... There are two processions. 
Um, the Father has paternity in relationship to the Son. He has spiration in relation to the Spirit. The Son has filiation in relation to the Father and spiration in relation to the Spirit. And the Spirit has procession from the Father and the Son. All right, so if you didn't catch that, the Father then has two relations that flow out of him, um, or two processions that flow out of him. The Son, for the Son there is one um, from whom he is, and then there's one to whom he goes, if you will. And then the Spirit um, is, is only from the Father and the Son, or from the Father through the Son. So um, this is important in, in understanding how the Father, the Son, and Spirit relate to one another. Now we come to five notions. Okay? Four relations, five notions. Because there is a problem. The problem with the four relations is that it doesn't, is that the personal property of paternity, for instance, concerning the Father, doesn't actually tell you about his origin. It tells you that he is the father of the son, but it doesn't answer the question properly where the father is from or how he has his being, which is different than the son and the spirit. The son and the spirit, in describing their procession, you are describing how they have their divine being, their origin, if you will. Again, not in time. But when it comes to the father, to say that he is the father of the son does not describe his origin, if you will, how he has his being. Now, there is sort of a, an answer that we have come across so far that sort of answers it, but it's, it's a half answer, okay? And that half answer is that the father has his origin or he has his being in that he is father of the son. Okay. And in fact, some of the early church fathers in, in speaking about the Trinity and defending, um, defending the Trinity, they would often said, I mean, this is a pretty regular thing that they would say is that the father could not be father without the son. Okay. That is true, but there's a caution here. You would not want to say, you would not want to give logical priority to the son over the father or in front of the father. You would not want to say that the father has his being because of the son. So theologians have added a notion, all right, that is called, you, I mean, you could call this, in my mind, I think it goes back to maybe some of the Cappadocians um, maybe Basil, I could be mistaken about that uh, as far as how far back it goes. I know Basil would use this language. Like why the language notion? I, I, to be honest, I think you could probably use the language property, but you just need to be able to distinguish between a personal property and something else, right? You just need another word for it. So the word notion has been used. And here it is. The notion of the father is his inassibility. Inassibility, I-N-N-A-S-C-I-B-I-L-I-T-Y. All right. Another word that you could use for this is his un 
originateness. Okay? He is from no other. Uh, Basil says, but that which is derived from none other has no principle, and what has no principle is ingenerate. So that's another word you could use. So the Father has no beginning. He is the first principle. He is, and, and he has no, uh, no beginning. He, he is inassible. That's the word that, that, uh, that is used. So uh, one God or, or essence, two processions, and then also the missions stem from that. Three persons by their three personal properties that, that we know by their, their three personal properties. Four relations, five notions. And there you have a very well-developed uh, dogmatic understanding of the Trinity. Now, I mentioned last week that there are three ways in which the, th the, the three persons are one God. What I want to do is suggest to you the opposite. How our one God is three persons, drawing on some of the things that we have mentioned already, but just kind of putting them into a systematic form here. Okay? And again, I have a triad. Um, it, this might be Trinitarian, uh, but the first is their personal properties. So in a normative fashion, you know that there is a father and a son and a spirit because the father has paternity. The son has uh, is filiated. The, the spirit is spirated. Okay? In this normative fashion, that just kind of like consubstantiality would be the normative sense in how the three are one, so too the personal properties is kind of the normative sense in which the one God uh, is also three persons. So the second way in which the one God is three persons is by their mode of emanation or procession. So this is what we discussed in relationship to knowledge and will. This really answers the question, why is the spirit not another son? Right? And it's because he, he proceeds from the father um, through the son in a different manner. Uh, not in the same matter, not in the likeness of the Father, but the, the will of the Father and the Son. And then lastly, how is the one God three persons? Well, in their eternal relations. Uh, so within those four relations, keep in mind that those are all opposing aspects. Not opposing in the sense that they're adversarial, but in the sense that... Um, that they are turned towards one another in order to, to have their persons. So that's, uh, hopefully that triad helps us comprehend how it is uh, that the one God is three persons. Now, with a little bit of the time we have left, I want to do a little bit of building out speculatively on something that does have a good foundation and ground within scripture and within the early church fathers. And that is the unique nature of the Holy Spirit. So we have, I've been mentioning from early, you know, the early parts of this lecture that the Holy Spirit is often seen in the early church fathers as being that which is between the Father and the Son. 
And yet, and yet, in the divine processions, uh, he is certainly third from the Father through the Son. And so the question is, how is it, and can we systematize, and can we even apply or draw from the fact that somehow the Holy Spirit is both after, again logically, after the Father and the Son, but also between the Father and the Son. Now maybe I'll just mention one passage that might help us to ground what, I mean, it's very clear that the early church fathers saw this, but one of the places that they would sometimes look at um, is at the end of John chapter 17. So in John 17, you have this wonderful prayer from the Son to the Father, and it's one of those, uh, you know, relatively few places in Scripture where the, the curtains of the drama of, of, of the Trinity being revealed here on earth in the missions of the, of the Son and the Spirit, how now all of a sudden you, you get sort of the drawing back of the curtain to see something that goes back in eternity. Um, and so, at the end of chapter 17, Jesus says in verse 20, well, I'll read for verse 22. Oh, eh, hmm. I'll go all the way back to 20, actually. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they, may, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, now listen to this, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Maybe you caught it. But all the way along, the, uh, the Son has been saying to the Father, that he has received glory from the Father, he has received love from the Father, and then also the Son has been passing things on to the disciples, whether it's the name that the Father has given him, uh, the glory the Father has given him. And then he says, the love which, with, that which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And the idea here is that that love is the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in them as Lord Jesus even is in them, all right? This, this, this uh, another advocate or another um, counselor. There are some other passages that, that might tease this out, um, but it, there's very, I mean, there, the church fathers are very clear that there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit lies between. Now, here, here we get into my, my speculation about how how this, I guess really a mechanic for this. And I see this, we're going to see this worked out actually in the vestiges of the Trinity as we progress in the last three lectures. Um, so I've, I've tested this over many, many years and throughout the different kind of triads that come in scripture. And I believe 
now quite strongly that within the name of the Holy Spirit, you've got a dual, if you will, function of the Holy Spirit within the divine trinity. I don't know if it has ever occurred to you, why is it that the Father has one name, the Son has one name, and the Holy Spirit has two names? Well, here we go. I believe that the word holy connotes, the word holy means separateness, consecration. There's some sort of, yeah, um, distinction that is made. And so in this way, I believe the holiness of the Spirit refers to the, the thirdness of the Holy Spirit, distinct from the Father and the Son, coming from them, um, succeeding, if you will, after. All right, again, not in time, logically. Whereas the word Spirit, I believe, connotes that which is between. And so connecting Father and Son. And I'll use this analogy because I think it might be helpful when, it, when we start to develop this a little later. That in a sense, as the Spirit comes out from the Father through the Son, again eternally, uh, logically, that he comes back to being between the Father and the Son. There's a couple of things that I think we would want to say. First of all, that the Holy Spirit, because of this aspect of who he is, is supra-relational. And, and I say this in answer to a question or a problem that arises in Scripture. The, the question or the problem which arises, you see it even here in John 17, is that the Scriptures are constantly talking about the Father and the Son. But the Spirit is sort of invisible. In so many places. I mean, you read through the book of John, and, and again, there are places where it specifically talks about the Holy Spirit, but there are plenty of places where it's just Father, Son, Father, Son. Um, so, you know, this, this normative greeting that we have in so many of the letters of the New Testament, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, you might think like, okay, well, if this is sort of the normative greeting that we have all the time, Where's the Holy Spirit? And what I want to suggest to you is that the Holy Spirit, even though he is in a certain sense, I want to be very careful about how I say this, he is, he is almost not as personal as the Father and the Son, although he is every bit as much a divine person, that that, and again, I'm, I'm trying to use language to describe this, that permits him to actually be supra-relational and be the communication of God in a, a multifactorial way, in just the, the superabundance of all that God is. So here's something for you to chew on, and you can test it. You can take away and test it. Maybe, you'll, maybe you think I'm wrong. Maybe you'll Think about it and go, oh, maybe that's right. Maybe you'll start to test it with some other passages of Scripture. I think when the, when the Scriptures say, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, I think the Holy Spirit is the grace and peace. 
I think he's the communication. Maybe that's stating it a little bit too strongly, but I believe that that grace and peace is the communication of the Spirit of God in the fullness and the superabundance of all that the Holy Spirit is. And he comes to us because he is that holiness which is which successively comes out from God and even prefigures, although not in a necessary way, prefigures a creation. I think it is, I've said this before, I'll keep saying it until somebody goes, oh, I think you're really going over the line there. <laughs> I, I think that we could say that creation is virtually inevitable because of the nature of God. Now, we, again, we want, to, we want to put a caution here. It's not necessary. But I think it's almost inevitable because of the Holy Spirit and him being this fullness of all that God is, not only coming back to God in, his, in the spiritness of the Holy Spirit, but also coming out for him, consecrating, separating, uh, successively extending who God is into everything. And by that, I refer to his holiness. So, we're going to be building on that in the next lecture because we're going to be getting into the vestiges of the Trinity and how we begin to see all of this worked out in, uh, in creation and then in the subsequent lectures, uh, redemption and last things. And I hope that we will begin to see, think, feel, pray increasingly Trinitarianly as we understand this.